We don't know how to be parents. And the answers are not in this Mr. Spock book. Um, it's Dr. Spock. Mr. Spock's one of you guys. Well, he still knows nothing about being parents. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast, Give Me That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 49 of Gimme That Star Trek. We're almost at 50. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid. And today, we're talking about shows that rode Star Trek The Next Generation's coattails. I think it would be true to say TNG's success changed the television landscape as much to show what television science fiction could do and what potential it had for syndication as well. So uh, my guest to tackle this topic has chosen half a dozen shows that fit the theme, and let me present him to you now. It, it's actually the very first guest I ever had on the show. Welcome back, Gene Hendricks. Hello, Siskoid. Only 48 episodes later, and I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> you, you haven't you haven't been back in between? You you must have done like a little clip for for something, no? Uh, yeah, I threw my voice in there so, at some point, yes. So, well, welcome back. You're back on Star Trek, but also we're talking about other shows than Star Trek. So, you know, what what is uh, the thesis here? What informed your choice of the six shows we're going to discuss and how they relate to Trek? As you said, Next Gen changed at least science fiction on television. If, if you look... At the broad strokes of everything, between Star Trek the original series and Star Trek Next Generation, sci-fi on TV basically went kiddie. It, it was all like Jason of Star Command or Voyagers or all these science fiction things aimed at kids. Now, with Next Gen, we're back around to, oh, we can take science fiction on television seriously. So we have these six shows not only use the medium to explore sci-fi ideas in a serious manner with serious topics. But these are also six shows that I watched. <laughs> now, I didn't watch the entire run of every single one of these shows, but I, I did see a good portion of them. And these are all ones that when you came to me with the idea, jumped right out of my head. It's like, oh, yes, I'm, I just wrote a list from memory, and these were the top six. So obviously they, they were able to leave an impression. They resonated, yeah. I watched half of these. I've okay. seen, I'd seen episodes of each, but uh, I only watched three, you know. And, and even so, I think I watched, of the three, there are a couple I watched later in life, let's say. Not when they were first run, but later, but entirely. So... I still managed to, in preparation for this, watch at least one episode of each Good. to make sure that uh, I knew what I was talking about. You know, some of these memories were very deep somewhere on the, <laughs> in, the in the brain bench, but it brought back some memories of where I was when these shows aired and, and what am I seen of it. So let's get into it. Let's talk about maybe the closest, the TNG clone <laughs> in a way, uh, and that's Sequest DSV. 
So it ran for three seasons between 1993 and 1996, and it goes something like this. In the early 21st century, mankind has colonized the oceans. The United Earth Oceans Organization enlists Captain Nathan Bridger and the submarine Sequest DSV to keep the peace and explore the last frontier on Earth. Uh, so only three seasons. Like, to me, that seems to be the most... Like, we want this to be TNG's replacement, because it starts during the last season of TNG. Yes, and also, if you look at the the crew makeup, you have the same basic setup. You have uh, Roy Scheider, at least initially, <laughs> is the commander of the vessel. They, they switched that to Michael Ironside in the third season. But you have the captain who is able to talk his way out of some stuff. You have the gung ho first officer. You've got the, the scientists around them. You have the, uh, the captain and the chief scientist are having a, a little thing going on. You know, it's a Sam and Diane situation. You have the genius teenager <laughs> played by Jonathan Brandis in this case, who seems to know more than all these people with all their technical training and then you add something that TNG didn't have, and that's the cute animal. Because <laughs> you have to have a talking dolphin, right? He's sort of the alien. He's, he's the Spock or the yeah. Data. Because you don't have aliens under the sea, at least initially. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> the idea is to maybe have the other, which is a perfectly Star Trek idea. So this does yes. really does work like... You know, it's a spaceship underwater. You know, the space is water, but <laughs> but it's basically TNG, right? It, I mean, it's yeah. uh, it's the same, same kinds of sets, the same kind of setting. Uh, they're keeping the peace. There's a computer hologram. We get the idea that this is very much supposed to be in the TNG mold. Yes, it is. It's basically what what if Star Trek was underwater? That's exactly what it is. To the point where they even have a view screen. Yeah, normally you can't do stuff like that in in submarines, but they have what they they refer to as whiskers or MST3K people will know it's rocket number nine, where they've got these things that are going on out remote controlled around Sequest that, oh, well, show me whisker number three. And that brings the image up on the main view screen on the bridge. So it's pretty much exactly like Star Trek. And I, I think what shows really that they were pushing for it to be as successful as TNG, to be the replacement, even though Deep Space Nine was already going on at this point, is the, the cred behind it. I mean, you had Steven Spielberg as a producer. You had, uh, like, the pilot had Irvin Kirshner of Empire Strikes Back fame as the director. You had Roy Scheider kind of trading on his Jaws cred, mm -hmm. being... Uh, you know, Chief Brody as the captain of the Enterprise, <laughs> kind of, kind of what, what was going on, meets the Abyss. Yeah. They were really, I feel like, pushing it strongly, and uh, still, the show, to use all my uh, ocean puns, but, you know, the, the show kind of floundered eventually. I, I think maybe it was too down-to-earth for audiences, or, like, the production, by the second season, really went into science fiction. The You know, the, the submarine time-traveled, and they had, like, Monsters mm -hmm. of the Week, and stuff that you would find in a normal sci-fi show and it sort of robbed it of its verisimilitude which maybe it had in the first season i don't know what you thought of those yeah. changes it's interesting because if you look at this and then you look at voyage to the bottom of the sea which was on at the same time as the original star trek oh yeah right it was it was the same thing. It was a, a, a very high-tech, large submarine going around, and in the first season of both, they are very grounded. Yes, this could happen in 20, 30 years' time. 
if we you know start colonizing under okay yeah but then as it moves on it gets more and more into the to use a voyage to the bottom of the sea one giant seaweed monster <laughs> that yes that was in one episode they had to go up and then the uh they got a flying sub in voyage to the bottom of the sea so it's okay well they're, you're just getting more and more out there and i'm not sure if it was a ratings thing if it was a network thing the writers wanted to do it i don't i don't know but both series follow the exact same progression as far as we yes we're a sci-fi show let's show we're a sci-fi show well sometimes see i i enjoyed it much more in the first season but yeah i I don't know how many people were watching it really because if i if i remember right it was on opposite something else oh it was a opposite murder she wrote or something so there you go yeah yeah no it it had trouble in that uh, and i i know that they moved production from la to florida to orlando in the second Mm. season and that's why they lost so many cast members a lot of people didn't want to move to florida Sorry, Gene. <laughs> <laughs> Through the three seasons, only Ted Raimi, who is the first of two Raimis we'll be talking about today, actually. <laughs> um, only Ted Raimi, as a sort of communications officer, stayed for the whole three seasons. You know, they kind of shed characters uh, left and right, either because of they made that move or, in the case of Roy Scheider, like you said, he was replaced. Well, he, it's not that he was replaced so much as he quit because yeah. he felt the scripts were starting to be silly, more childish, and, you know, all of this science fiction stuff, the monster of the week in particular, I think, is, okay, now we're dumbing it down. Where before, I think it felt like, okay, this is what it might be when we colonize the sea, you know, that it felt like, sure, the the sub itself was a little extreme in terms of science fiction, uh, what we'd see, but it kind of, okay, we've got, like, these algae farms, and we've got, you know, it, it felt like we got raiders, and we've got... We're patrolling the oceans, and it kind of felt real enough. Yeah, it, it had that, like you said before, vermis- vermisserilitude, or how... Somebody get Rob Kelly in. <laughs> yeah, it's very similitude, so very similar. That too. <laughs> that reality to it. That's what drew me to it, is the fact that it, it was a more realistic and grounded... <laughs> for something that isn't on the ground, grounded show, so that it made sense. I mean, the Lucas character was still annoying just because I but then again that's that's a hang up I have. I don't yeah. I don't like the idea of, oh, you have a genius teenager that is more capable than an entire highly trained scientific crew. He was an arrogant Wesley. Yeah. Essentially it's how you would think that Wesley may have turned out. Really, yeah, is I'm better than you, and I know it. I still feel like Sequest had, like, obviously, it's it's formulaic in the sense that it's really copying the the broad strokes, the structure of Star Trek TNG. But yeah. I do feel it was something of a trendsetter, anyway, in the way that, like, in the world of copycats, because there are so many shows. You know, when we were talking about this at the beginning, it's like there are so many shows that have this structure. That we recognize as the Star Trek structure, with the crew, with the the main set, and then they go to other worlds or they deal with different problems. And that can be really on Earth, like, uh, I don't know, like Primeval or, you know, shows like The Sanctuary and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Or it can be, we're actually going to place like the, the Stargate franchise. There are many spaceship shows, and we'll talk about one or two as we go on. 
but mm-hmm. the the crew, the ensemble cast, basically, that work within a hierarchy and deal with problems from a main right. set. You know, th- that structure, I feel like Sequest is kind of the first one to boldly copy <laughs> Star Trek in that way. <laughs> and it kind of gives permission for all these other shows to do the same. It just becomes, like, for someone who was watching TV in the 90s, they would go, you know, the sitcom with the apartment set. It's just a trope. We're not copying anybody. That is just what we do for genre adventure shows. And that's just one way to do it. It's a diehard situation where you you describe something to someone as diehard in a fill-in-the-blank. Well, Sequest is Star Trek under the ocean. A lot of shows do that. It's Star Trek in blank. Yeah, you know, and that's that's just the shorthand, and you can describe any number of shows that way. You're just sort of the maybe the the jumping board. The you know that's that's how we got to what we got later. Sequest definitely opened the floodgates. That it wasn't just Star Trek that could do this. Next up, we want to talk about Earth Final Conflict. This ran for a surprising five seasons. It's a Canadian show. Uh, it was syndicated elsewhere. Ran from 1997 to 2002. So this is like the later of all the shows we're talking about. It's the one that that takes place later. When an alien species comes to Earth bearing gifts for humanity, a few suspicious humans seek to discover and resist the newcomers. Oh, don't use that word. That's another series. The newcomers' <laughs> true designs. The talons in this. So this was actually it's. Gene Roddenberry's Earth Final yes. Conflict. So we see the link here. Star Trek is back on the map. Star Trek succeeded. Gene Roddenberry's work is, his ideas are golden, even though he'd passed away, you know, six years before. Yes. And this show not only had a recurring guest star, but it was also uh, executive produced by Majel Roddenberry. It, it was in the family, as it were. And mm-hmm. the, the initial pilot... And I think some of the other uh, first season scripts were actually written by Gene Roddenberry. And it was set on Earth. This time it's flipped where you have a first contact scenario from the other side. We are being contacted by the advanced alien race who is going to show us the way of things, etc. And this this one was – it was interesting because it it's not it's not what you normally think of as – Gene Roddenberry's futurism, the utopia, post-scarcity, etc. civilization. This seems to be going that way. And in the pilot, several people actually mention, oh, well, you know, the Talons have solved the hunger problem. They've cured X number of diseases. They're helping us to, to get to that utopian ideal. But as with most people saying, oh, yeah, we'll we'll give you this stuff for free. There's a group that doesn't believe them, that thinks there is an ulterior motive. And that's where you get the conflict in Earth Final Conflict, is you have the the resistance movement, some of which are actually close to the Talons. The main character in the first season and one of the recurring characters uh, work very closely with one of the companions, as they are referred to. You get to see all the different sides of it. And it's a very interesting very interesting show. I only caught the very beginning of it because this ran from 97 to 2002. Well, I, in fall of 97 to spring of 98, I wasn't even in the United States. I was in England. <laughs> so I didn't catch this first run. I caught it in syndication later on. 
but it was spotty. It was one of those things where they didn't really have a good time slot for it, so it was kind of jumping all over the place. And also, it was plagued even more than Sequest. It was plagued by cast issues. <laughs> From what I've read, because this was one of the shows I watched. I was aware of it because... Uh, Gene Roddenberry's name was attached to it, obviously, so there was some press to it. It was a Canadian show, so it was on all the time here. Um, there is a, a strong pressure on Canadian channels to show Canadian content. There are laws that enforce mm-hmm. this. So any of these shows, like if you're watching uh, Space, or now it's called something else, but it's like our sci-fi channel. At the time, it aired on CTV, which is one of our major English-language broadcasting channels. Then when they need to fill up some air, when they need to bolster their percentage of Canadian content, uh, you'll get all these Highlander shows and and this. <laughs> uh, Earth Final Conflict would run because it was Canadian content. I did catch episodes here and there, but because it was like a long-form story... It's hard to get into if you jump in the middle of it. You know, it, it wasn't so yeah. episodic. And I feel like this is still 1997 like when it started, which is which is far down the line. But a lot of television was still episodic at the time, unless you're talking about soaps. So I feel like this is one of the forerunners to what we see all the time now. Like now, yes. genre television is all about setting up a conspiracy and, you know, the, the characters are going to explore that conspiracy and there's reveals and twists and... This is what Earth Final Conflict was already doing. Like, I feel like there is a connection to X-Files, which was already a hit at the time. But X-Files was also episodic, and then sometimes they do the arc stuff. But Earth Final Conflict is just arc, basically, you know. There's very few what you would call um, mythology or filler episodes in this. It's Everything is always moving the overall plot forward. And just due to the... The nature of it actually, it kind of works if you think about it, because you have this resistance movement. You have people trying to figure out what's going on. Well, in something like that, you're going to have personnel move around and doing different things and not be in contact for a while. So it kind of works with the contractual problems they were having with people. Because I think if today, if you're watching a show and somebody gets killed off suddenly or drummed out of the show, today might be scripted. You know, it's like, this is a big shocker. And uh, the character that you've been following is suddenly dead. And, you know, I think we see this in later shows in a scripted way. Mm -hmm. Uh, At this point, yeah, obviously it was contractual stuff and we don't know what's going on, the shenanigans. But like Sequest, like the storytelling is impaired by this. And by the fifth season... And this is all things I've read because obviously I haven't seen the whole show. Uh, but it is available on like our Amazon Prime in Canada, so I, I could. And I might. <laughs> but <laughs> apparently the fifth season, they've even gotten rid of the Talons. It's another alien race. So right. the, the show had trouble kind of keeping to a single thing because of other pressures. And, and maybe they jumped a shark. That it was a four-season show and you know they went on a bit too long with their storyline, possibly. But you're right to say that Roddenberry had written a few scripts because he's been working since after Star Trek in the 70s. He was writing different shows, the Quester tapes, and there are different ones. And this one was actually called Battleground Earth at the time. But Battlefield Earth, (laughs) the movie, (laughs) L. Ron Hubbard's movie version of of his book, had come out fairly recently. So at the time, so they changed the name to 
Earth Final Conflict instead of Battleground Earth. But it was a project that Major Barrett uh, Roddenberry championed in 97. That's uh, that's when DS9 is ending and Voyager is starting, you know? So she, mm. Roddenberry's name still has a lot of push and cred. And this, the success of this show, because it was a success to get to five seasons, is what uh, allowed other Roddenberry projects to get their start, including Andromeda, which is also a spaceship show with a crew and a, a chair on the bridge. Yes. So uh, I think it still had its influence, even though because it is a Canadian production, it may not have much market penetration compared to some of these others. And you, you know, to bring it back to Star Trek, this is a thing where you have a whole race of Spocks or Datas coming to Earth and, well, we're going to show, you know, yes, their ultimate goal is world domination, twisting the, the mustache and everything, but you have some of them who actually give a damn about humans and they're asking, you know, oh, we're doing this for you. Why are you suspicious? Well, because... <laughs> And then so you you get the mirror held up to humanity through them and you're exploring, you know, how what their culture is like and everything. So it and there there's some interesting interactions going on. You can see the Roddenberry fingerprints on here. I think once once Majel kind of left the more hands on stuff, I think she was done in like season three. That's when it started to go all to hell, (laughs) basically. Because it could have still been, I mean, in a way, what it became is sort of, okay, what if what if First Contact wasn't with the Vulcans, it was with the Cardassians or something? Um, right, yeah. But the Talons are very Vulcan, you know, they seem very ethereal and, and, you know, intellectual at first, anyways. So I think it's interesting to Star Trek fans, just simply as, you know, a series Bible by the same creator as Star Trek. And if we look at his series Bible for Andromeda, his series Bible for Earth Final Conflict or whatever then it's it's all part of the same, you know, mind. So it could inform us as to what, you know, the same person who created one created the other, and maybe it's a different facet, a different thing that he wanted to explore, but the same morality or the same ethics or the same vision is part of it. So I, I think Earth's final conflict, at least at the beginning when, you know, obviously Roddenberry's not there to shepherd it, but at least at the beginning when they're using they're working from his cocktail napkins, basically. Are we closer to something? You know, where would this have gone with him in charge is the question. Mm. I, I, maybe it wouldn't have been mustache twirling. Maybe it, it would have been about the Star Trek ethic in some way. That would have been very interesting if if they went through it all as, yeah, we don't believe the Talons. We think they're up to something. And then it turned out, no, they weren't. <laughs> But because the pilot is ambiguous on this point, I, yeah. I, like the characters yeah. are suspicious, but are they just suspicious of the other? Is it just xenophobia? And, and it mm-hmm. is. I mean, we've been bred and we, we've, you know, we've been taught that people don't do things just to do things. They don't do it out of their kindness of their hearts. And like if this alien federation comes over and they're supposed to be altruistic, well, that's how every planet sees the federation in Star Trek. It's like where these altruistic people are coming to help us in first contact and blah, 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 blah. But do they have ulterior motives? Nobody does these things for no reward. So mm-hmm. that, that's the question, but it's flipped on its because now we're humans looking at these aliens and our ethics are of a, a certain kind. We're cynical. And yeah. these aliens may not have that culture at all, which is sort of reversed in the future that is Star Trek. So I, I think there's there's something interesting there that 
if Roddenberry had been alive, obviously, mm-hmm. this show would have maybe ended up quite different in terms of, of the story. Now, I have a question about your next pick, because <laughs> it, <laughs> it is the least successful of the six shows that we're looking at. It is Mantis. So in this, a brilliant wheelchair-bound scientist invents a form of exoskeleton called the Mechanically Augmented Neurotransmitter Interception System, or Mantis, that turns him into a superhero and gives him the ability to fight the crime wave that is engulfing his city. It ran for one season from 1994 to 1995. Uh, so again, on the TNG's out, what's replacing it? That bus. Why Mantis? I mean, this is like an early superhero show. It seems very different from the other ones, and it wasn't a success. Like I said, this this is one that did leave an impression on me. Part of the reason for that is the lead, Dr. Miles Hawkins, is played by Carl Lumley. Awesome. Listeners of this network know Carl Lumley as the voice of Jean Jones, the Manhunter from Mars on Justice League and Justice League Unlimited cartoons. And this was the first superhero ever played, (laughs) Mantis. Yes, but it's a superhero show, but it's very science-based. The idea of this exosuit that can help people in wheelchairs, like the lead character, to actually walk again, it's a great idea. But it's also interesting to see the interactions between the characters. One one of the uh, main characters, the the science helper to uh, Hawkins, is played by Roger Rees, who, if you have seen Robin Hood Men in Tights, you'll recognize as Mervyn, the sheriff of Nottingham. Mm, yeah, that's right. He had a good role on uh, the West Wing as well. He was like the, uh, the mm. drunken British ambassador. Yeah. <laughs> he was very funny there as well. <laughs> Yeah, and he is kind of the comic relief here. In he'll be uh, sarcastic about stuff, and you'll see, you know, Carl Umley just give him a look. Is like, okay, fine, <laughs> I'll do the way you want it. The thing about Mantis is it explored the science. It said, okay, well, like the the one episode I watched to refresh myself for this involves someone who was able to generate an electricity and essentially throw lightning bolts. Okay, well, how are we going to fight this well yeah the suit isn't protected from that you get hit with a lightning bolt and it's going to short you out okay well we need to do this and this and then we can actually redirect the energy but it, it actually uses real science in a science fiction way so it it gives you a little more information a little more uh learning to it and that's at least in my head Part of the Star Trek thing is, okay, well, we're going to take technology and figure out how to use it to solve our problem. Same thing here. It's just it's a a little more superhero-y than you would get in Star Trek. It would have been my answer as well. You know, the episode I watched was the first one, not the TV pilot, not the uh, TV movie, but the first Mm -hmm. actual episode. And it's about it's sort of a sins of the father or sins of the inventor kind of returning to haunt Hawkins. And it could have worked without the suit, without the superhero stuff, because we've got scientists, they're working on a problem. The problem is some sort of uh, chemical agent or uh, like a bioweapon that was supposed to be destroyed, that he'd created or helped create. And then um, it was supposed to be destroyed and wasn't, you know, there's somebody greedy out there that that kept it alive. Mm -hmm. And now people are starting to die uh, so that it can be sold to the highest bidder. It's Again, it's about the science, and you could have had Lumley solving crimes or helping solve crimes of a scientific nature, of a super scientific nature. They call him a mad mm-hmm. scientist 
in that episode. It's like, well, <laughs> and it's like, well, what if mad scientists existed? What if Luthors and existed, but also were benevolent? So he's like a Reed Richards or a Tony Stark, you know. But with, even if you if you did away with the suit and the superhero action, which is sort of, uh, I feel very Super Saiyan, super, like, you know, it's got a Japanese style to it. Hmm. Kind of a Giver, or anyway, if people understand my references, but yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it kind of has that that feel and that look. But if you didn't have that, I think it would still work as a like a science or a mad science driven cop show. Like it feels the most like The Flash because The Flash is also a, a complete scientist. And yeah, yeah. Well, that's also what I was thinking because if you look at the general feel of the show, the, the way the sets are constructed, the way it's filmed, it looks like the Flash TV show from the ni- 1990s. So it, it, I think that what they did is they took that as an idea as, oh, well, this, this was, you know, superheroes were popular and we have the science idea. They decided to give the, the lead character to an African-American actor. Is, is he the first African-American live action superhero? At least to hold his own series. I'm not talking about, you know, like, uh, not, yeah, we're not talking legends of superheroes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think he is. Um, I'm not entirely, I haven't researched it, but he's, he is the first one I remember having his own show. Yes. We also have to remember who created this show. And, uh, it yes. is a creation of, uh, you know, Sam Raimi, and um, Sam Hamm, who wrote like, the first Batman movie, is that, the, I mean, the 89 movie, Sam Hamm? Yeah, he, he wrote uh, Batman and Batman Returns. Yeah. Right. And um, and Sam Raimi, of course, made Darkman. It was also a superhero movie, kind of like shadowy, kind of like this one. So so it's perfectly in their wheelhouse to do this for television. It just, it just didn't work out. I don't think it found its audience, or maybe later episodes weren't as involving as you know earlier ones or yes wasn't it also on fox and fox's no this this was on fox it was uh it was distributed by nbc but it 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 started on the fox network it was uh, that was very early i can't remember exactly when fox went from just a you know we only have shows in these time slots to being on all the time but it was fairly early on in that so you got a lot of experimentation like with this with Briscoe County Jr., things of that nature is just like, oh, okay, we're just going to throw everything out there and, you know, hopefully people will watch. And also, like, the next show we're going to talk about is also on Fox and also didn't last very long. Fox, well known Mm. for canceling genre shows (laughs) before their time. Except for X-Files. Mantis, I saw an episode, like, I caught an episode somewhere sometime. You know, I I wasn't watching that show. But Alien Nation... Now, that's a show that Fox was not a channel that we got here until late. But I did mm-hmm. watch the entire series a few years ago, reviewed every one, and, you know, quite enjoyed it. So Alien Nation was actually a 1988 uh, movie. Uh, it spawned a TV series, one season from 89 to 90, and then some TV movies to follow up and finish the story uh, between 94 and 97. So I would call it a, a greater success than Mantis. Yes, Basically, in the near future, a human cop and his alien partner fight crime and discrimination in Los Angeles. It's a buddy cop show, but one of the cops is an alien. I think this one is very much... It's very early. I mean, TNG had been on for a couple years when it actually Mm -hmm. debuted. It's really jumping off of a a movie that did well enough. But um, it doesn't really wait for TNG 
to take off is what I mean. Right. This is one where, again, Fox was at this point still a brand new network. We used to have three networks. Now we have four. They were trying to get everything they possibly could and just getting something that had a brand name associated with it. The, The movie was a year before the TV show. So they didn't wait at all. They just bang right into the TV show. And this is one that I remember being on all the time. Yeah. It only lasted one season, but it got rerun to death. Oh (laughs) yeah. It was either Fox was rerunning it or I remember seeing it on the USA network. I know sci-fi eventually picked it up, but it was on for well beyond this one year, which is why they ended up making the TV movies because they saw, yeah, it got canceled, but then they, <laughs> they saw, Oh crap. Yeah. There's still a huge audience for this. Let's get it back. on. <laughs> yeah. The audience kind of built after its death. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I actually saw the TV show well before I ever saw the movie. So it was interesting going back and watching the movie with uh, James Conn and Mandy Potemkin. as the lead characters and being fairly different than what's on TV. Cause yeah. Okay. It's, it's broadcast television. It has to meet standards and practices and everything, but it was also a much different interaction. Cause in the movie, George is the alien cop is a lot more naive, a lot more newcomer. He doesn't know what's going on in the TV show. He has the basics down. There's some things he still mixes up, but he's, he, he seems like the newcomers are much more integrated into society. Right. It's later, I guess. It, it must be. It, it must be like several years down the road from what you see in the movie. Yeah. Because, you know, the one thing that you see repeated a lot at least I see repeat a lot is when George and his family, they were going to have another child. And that was, Oh yeah, we have to go through this whole thing of alien reproduction. And George gets frustrated with what humans do. (laughs) And he he says, you know, I, I, I can't tell anything from this Mr. Spock book and slams it down. And so Sykes just looks at him and says, no, 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 that's Dr. Spock. Mr. Spock is one of you guys. (laughs) <laughs> so they know what they're doing. Uh, <laughs> they they know exactly what they're doing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I think James Caan, his version of the human cop is much more racist. Oh, he he is so racist it's it's not even funny. Like he doesn't want to be saddled with an alien for a partner because of his innate racism. But on the TV show, Sykes has to be a lot more sympathetic and so mm-hmm. he's more of a I'm I'm not sure I understand your culture kind of guy, but it's he's not overtly uh, xenophobic, you know, in in the same way. So it right. is toned down for the show. The, the TV show allows, it's much more interesting because it allows for us to explore that alien culture in a way that would not really be done on Star Trek. All apologies to Klingons and, and Vulcans. But at that point, we wouldn't get that deep into an alien culture until DS9 and like Cardassians and Bajorans, where there, there was more of a culture and the characters stuck around in the same place. And then the the newcomers are much more alien as well in terms of culture. I I feel like this, even though, you know, it's a cop show, it's totally different from Star Trek in structure. It is one of the closest in terms of ethics, where it is about understanding the other and that we're stronger together. And um, I, I feel like it's much more of a Star Trek show 
than it might look like, you know, on the surface. Yeah, just looking at it overall, oh, it's a sci-fi cop show. You know, it's what are they going to have in here? But yeah, especially when you're looking at stuff from George's point of view in looking at his family and everything and how things how things get flipped because the newcomers in the TV show have essentially three genders. They have male and they have female, and then they have – I can't remember the name of it, but it's a third gender that has to be involved in order for the baby to be conceived. Turns out that happens to be the janitor that works at the, the police station. Okay, who knew? It's weird when you, when you think of this back in 1989 – no one was talking about stuff like this. You know, yeah, you can do it in in the alien culture and say, yeah, well, there's there's this other thing out there that humans don't know about. Well, turns out humans do kind of know about it. It's just no one was speaking about it back then. And it's totally the moral fable type stuff that Star Trek has been doing since the 60s, you know, about bigotry, about racism. I mean, there's something to it. The newcomers were a slave race of an, mm-hmm. a third alien or a second, uh, a third race, I guess. If humans are one and then the newcomers and then there's like this other race that enslaved them and bred them basically. And now they're free. They've crashed on earth and they're free from their masters. And that is a way to, you know, to use science fiction to speak about the African-American condition and uh, Mm -hmm. the integration of minorities and of immigrants into the culture. There was a lot to it. Uh, It was like a a mega metaphor for very, very many different things, including, you know, a subsection of the LGBTQ plus uh, experience as well, like you said. So, you know, that this show, I can't believe only lasted one season, but I think it's because it came too early in a, you know, on a channel that was sort of had yet to (laughs) really build momentum as well. It was too early. And the fact that it did well in syndication is part of the TNG success because TNG proved that like genre television was great for syndication in the same way that sitcoms are. If you're watching Mm -hmm. TV around dinner time, it's always the syndicated stuff. After the news, syndicated stuff. Where did everybody see every Seinfeld a hundred times? Syndication. (laughs) Friends, syndication but that's where i watched the original series star trek was after the news you know somewhere in there around dinner time we would watch star trek the original and then tng was also syndicated and you know there are channels that are basically showing one star trek or another on a loop basically today so the fact that even a show that lasted only one season could still have legs in syndication normally it takes you a number of years before you know it's actually possible but with all these cable channels popping up they need content and they're ready to run that one season show and then it builds Mm -hmm. enough momentum that they had to go and by the time that they made tv movies to finish the story we're 94 94 is when tng was at its hottest tng was ending ds9 was in the middle of its run voyager was about to you know it, it was basically a golden age for television science fiction and, oh, we've got this Alien Nation stuff. We better make movies while we can still get some actors together. You know, basically. They could actually do this project and finish a series that had been dead for years. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. I think that we um, we also need to point out, because this, you know, shag is on this network, that Alien Nation was executive produced by Kenneth Johnson. He of V fame. <laughs> 
Exactly. Yes, it is cousin to V. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, the most successful show, I would say, uh, at least for the mainstream that we have on our list, is Quantum Leap, a beloved show. Love that show. Watched it every episode several times. I have it on DVD. It lasted five seasons from 89. So this is a very early one as well. 89 to 93. And if you don't know it, how dare you? <laughs> how is it possible? How are you listening to this network if you don't know about Quantum Leap? Well, during a government experiment into time travel, a scientist, Sam Beckett, finds himself trapped in the past, leaping into the bodies of different people on a regular basis and sorting out their problems whilst trying to get back home to his own time. And that's the IMDb description. And they might have just used like the opener, you know, to set, yeah. <laughs> to, to set right when went wrong, you know, stepped into the accelerator and vanished, all of this stuff. But... I know, you know it. It's Quantum Leap. This is a very, very different show from Star Trek, or is it? Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm asking. That's the thing. This, yeah, th- this is, um, if you go down to Star Trek's basic premise to discover new life, okay, not really, and new civilizations, aha, okay. For Sam Beckett and the audience, Jumping into each one of these characters, each one of these lives, you get to learn about that microcosm, that that family, that group, and what that civilization is like. And it's in all kind of different time periods, so they can they can tackle plenty of different topics. It's an exploration of the human condition, which is what Roddenberry was doing all along. <laughs> So it is very akin to Star Trek. It's telling it in a much different way, but you're getting to see a lot of the same concepts, a lot of the same mirror held up to humanity. And it's as Sam is forced to experience everything, the audience is taken along for the ride, and we learn the same lessons that Sam does and why things are put right, why he can now leap out is essentially a morality tale every single episode. So it, it works on the same Star Trek premise as what you would consider more like a sequest, more of a an actual Trek-like show. Same basic idea. Yeah, where Sam is kind of trapped in the role of a one-man away team. <laughs> you know, because he's communicating <laughs> with the base. And obviously there's going to be like a throw forward in terms of, of uh, influence because Scott Bakula will eventually be a, the captain of an enterprise, you know. Yes. Uh, but this is much later. But still trading on that sort of um, idealism that he portrayed in Quantum Leap, I think. There is a connection there. Now, you, you've really recontextualized Quantum Leap to make it a Trek show, and I, I, I like it. So, But <laughs> this is probably like an early, in a way, like TNG hadn't really become a big hit at the time, but I remember everybody was watching it from 87, basically. And uh, any show that starts in 89 is informed by that that mainstream success. So to me, like what my memory of early, like Quantum Leap, because I moved out of the home around that time, is that my mom would watch TNG and not be bothered by it. She wasn't like a science fiction person or by any means, but she <laughs> would watch TNG no problem. She felt that um, Picard made bald sexy. She <laughs> felt she she thought that like Troy was uh, was like the most beautiful woman she'd ever seen. So like 
Like, I remember these comments. In other words, she was watching. It's not like I'm in the kitchen while the kids are watching Doctor Who, which also happened. But mm-hmm. <laughs> it is, yeah. it, you know, so I know she watched it. Obviously with us, and probably the impetus was the kids want to watch it. She had a connection to it. She felt engaged by it. And that's why TNG had a mainstream success. I think people that don't n- normally watch science fiction watched it, found a reason to get involved with it. And the same is true of Quantum Leap, because this was a show that, you know, it doesn't have to be my idea to watch it. My mom had it on her must-watch list. To people, to, to the mainstream, the idea of nostalgia, the idea of like going back into the past, the re- fairly recent past, like your parents would have lived through those years basically you know they would recognize the fashions mm-hmm. and the music and the and also i think that the, how genuine scott bacula was in the role like what a nice guy <laughs> i think that really <laughs> yeah. that charmed audiences you know that like the whole the sam beckett character charmed audiences creating a show that would appeal to the mainstream that was genre became possible when TNG did it, I probably all, a lot of these projects were already in the pipeline, or you know, you know, people were working on these ideas, but that suddenly they all get greenlit in the span of maybe five years. You know, is maybe indicative of TNG's success. I think, even if they seem very different, they're tapping into the same sort of values, like you said. There is something to that in Quantum Leap for sure. Unlike Star Trek, where it always looks the same. What you'll get with Quantum Leap is you'll get the people coming in for the drama side of it. They don't care about the sci-fi aspect of it. They're coming in for the period drama of what's going on, which also was fairly big even in the late 80s. Like BBC productions, we over here would see on Masterpiece Theater and things of that nature where – because even at this point, we were – at least my family, we were still watching Mystery with Sherlock Holmes and Poirot and everything. Sure. So the the period mindset drew a lot of people in as well. So you get a lot of cross-pollination with this show. You get the sci-fi people. You get the period people. You get the drama people. You get a huge portion of the TV watching audience has something they can latch on to with quantum leap and the fact that also gives you these great morality tales it, that's really why it lasted so long i think yeah what's the right thing to do in situations you know that is a star trek thing the moral dilemma and that's what sam had to go through every episode basically and they keep promising that they might come back i keep seeing like press releases that it might come back that they're working on another one that a female leaper would be like the star and scott bacula may return as in some role in there i'll believe it when i see yeah it. <laughs> I, I feel like this is a show that works for episodic television and most television now is not episodic you know, it, it right. is long form, so maybe its day has passed. But, you know, we've got five seasons to watch and rewatch. Another show that did well, but I, I would say with genre audiences more than mainstream audiences, is our last on our list, Babylon 5. In this, in the mid-23rd century, which sounds a very familiar century, the Earth Alliance mm. space station Babylon 5, located in neutral territory, is a major focal point for political intrigue, racial tensions, and various wars over the course of five years. And yes, it did last five seasons between 1993 and 1998. It had a spin-off. It, you know, it had like some DVD movies. So Babylon 5... A big success. I file the numbers off, and it sounds like I'm talking about Deep Space Nine. And that's the big thing that Babylon 5 fans like to harp on, is the idea that Trek showrunners copied off J. Michael Straczynski's plans when they created Deep Space Nine. 
And I will say that may be a topic for a show in the future, because I, I think there are a lot of links between the two shows. But it doesn't matter to me, because despite the similarities, the two shows evolved in different ways, became very different animals. Now, both of them are worthy of your attention. I'll leave it at that in a way. <laughs> but it still owes something to TNG, doesn't it? It does, because without TNG, you wouldn't get something like this. This is kind of a an interesting thing because you go – we just talked about a show that only works really as an episodic. This is long form well before long form was a thing. Very long form. It's not seasonal long form. It's no series long form. The, JMS had a five-year plan. <laughs> He knew exactly where he wanted to go. Now, that guy kind of got screwed up when they got canceled in the fourth season and then picked back up for a fifth yeah. season. <laughs> kind, you know, kind of ruined a, a few things. But you're getting stuff in the very early first season that doesn't pay off for two or three seasons down the road. And it's terrific the way it, it's all worked in. And when you have this overarching thing, it's just wonderful. Now, yeah, it's kind of similar to DS9 in that it's a space station. It's a port. It's um, boldly staying, as people like to say about <laughs> DS9. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that one, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's got an emissary, you know, like a person of mm -hmm. fated to become something to an alien culture. So it's got an emissary. It's got... Right. Uh, eventually, they throw up their hands and said, well, I guess we need a flagship and added a ship. Right. <laughs> so there are many similarities, even once it was going on. They, they right. maybe have been cross-pollinization there or something. You know, stuff going back and forth. But if you look at the structure of it, it is still a military structure. You have the base commander, who was a commander, just like DS9 in the beginning. Uh, you have his first officer, who is my favorite character on the show, uh, Susan Ivanova. Sure. Later replaced... In season five, but we won't go into that. You've got uh, the other hierarchy. You've got the doctor who's doing his own thing. You've got the security chief who is um, not necessarily by the book, but by the the code of justice. A lot like Odo. Mm -hmm. You've got the different alien ambassadors showing up all the time. So, yeah, it's there's a lot of similar stuff here. But the way they work with it, the fact that on Deep Space Nine... There is no lower class. On Babylon 5, there's a whole mess of them. You have these people that, oh, I'm going to go see the stars, and they ran out of money. They just could not go anywhere else, and now they are essentially homeless on a space station, which is not all that terrific, if you think about it. It's not all you can even get out So they had that level to deal with. You had the level of... Like the wormhole aliens in DS9 were not telling Cisco everything, but they were feeding him little bits. The same thing happened with the Vorlons on this. They knew what was going on, but they, you know, just dribs and drabs in riddles coming out. I think one of the, the, the major differences, though, and unfortunately this was because of um, health issues, the lead changed between seasons one and season two because you had – Initially, um, Jeffrey Sinclair, played by Michael O'Hare, was the commander, and he was meant to go through the whole thing. But he was having uh, issues with his mental health that no one knew about, and he took himself out. 
And then you bring in Bruce Boxleitner, best known as Tron to those of us of a certain vintage. <laughs> or if it's another vintage yet, Scarecrow from Scarecrow, Mrs. King. Yes. <laughs> and, and he becomes Sheridan. Yeah. Right. He plays Captain Sheridan. So now you have people that are promoted under him. It's just like what eventually happens on DS9 is, okay, well, yeah, you. it's now commanded by a captain and the first officer went up a grade and etc. But it's – I think the main issue is the way they treat the societies. It's not – the Federation isn't mainly – because we do see characters that aren't. But mainly we want to do good for everyone. We want to help everybody. EarthGov is not like that. And that ends up in a civil war in Babylon 5. And it, it's uh, it's a much more – human show i mean i don't mean that to say that there aren't alien influences etc but it's it's not a utopia yeah if we were in space now we would be acting like this yes of course it takes like different routes and and i understand that um jms originally pitched it to paramount and that some suits may have have had access to that series bible and may have influenced the DS9 people. But uh, JMS says he, he doesn't think the DS9 showrunners ever saw it. But they may have been pushed, you know, angled into different things by people who have. So there are similarities. And then, of course, it's, it's got to branch off. It's got to do its own thing. And Babylon 5 shows the, the trouble you can get into with a five-year plan. Because, yeah, yeah. If you lose an actor, um, we're screwed because I'd put all the Destiny stuff was on that guy, and now it has to be on another guy, mm -hmm. and we've got to explain why the Destiny is, like, that there was this alternate Destiny. Or they, when they cancel it and bring it back, he'd run to the finish and then has to do, like, you know, a whole year's worth of epilogue basically, which is problematic. So, but what's amazing about it, and uh, I will I will tell you, I've hated everything else JMS has ever done, <laughs> except for yeah. Babylon 5. I don't like his comics work at all. Uh, so I'm not a JMS fan per se, but I am a Babylon 5 fan. What's amazing is that once they get rid of the, like at the beginning, the first season is written by many people, like different scripts by different people. And it does have the feel of, you know, that awkward first season of Deep Space Nine. You know, it's kind of like that. And then JMS just, like, gave up on the writer's room or the, the, you know, different people writing different scripts. And he wrote the whole thing himself to the point of exhaustion, I'm sure. You know, it's this is an insane oh, yeah. thing to do for one person to be the showrunner and write every script, you know, of seasons that last like in the 20s. Not like these precious little eight-episode seasons that we get now or... <laughs> no, no. A full season of network television from, from the day. Guy never slept, probably. But it creates... Yeah. He can set something up in season two that will pay off in season four in that way. You know, he knows exactly. He's tracking everything and barring any incidents like the loss of an actor. You get like the vision of one person. And that's really, really interesting and hasn't been really done on that scale ever again. I find that an amazing thing. Babylon 5 is also a strong influence on later shows. It's not just Star Trek, even though it, it has like, you know, the cast of humans and aliens cooperating or, or, or in conflict, which comes from Star Trek uh, of that era. It's also got its own thing going. And I think like something like Battlestar Galactica, the modern one owes a lot to, to mm -hmm. Babylon 5, even though it is written in complete opposition to it. Instead of a five-year plan, it's a by-the-seat-of-your-pants <laughs> improvisation. Oh, crap, we set this up. Now yeah. Now what are we yeah, doing? Exactly. It's an improvisation. <laughs> it's about them 
writing organically and then putting you know putting themselves into corners where they how do we get out of this then looking at back at other episodes and making these prophecies that keep coming up makes sense in the end whether they do or do not is a matter of controversy among fans but but <laughs> you know so it's it's written completely with a different approach ron moore is the reverse jms but <laughs> but it's also about trusting an audience to stay with you for four years and letting characters change and evolve and the situation change and evolve in surprising ways. I feel like much of the genre television that we get later, whether it is kind of plagued by ye old conspiracy, which is something I'm, I'm very, very tired of today. The, the idea of long form in genre really comes from... Babylon 5, much more than it does DS9. DS9 also went a little bit more long form, but it was still very much episodic until that last run at the end. So Babylon 5 is really the precursor, uh, the successful precursor to this kind of genre or space opera. Right. Yeah, you're you're going to have a bunch of things happening to make an episode, but there's also this undercurrent of in everything of the long story of what's going on in the background, you know, and just like, you know, with Babylon five, just the idea of the first ones and how early that comes in and doesn't really get paid off until much later. But every, you'll every now and again, you'll have people like, uh, Jakar saying, you know, no, don't go over there. Trust me. <laughs> you don't want to do it. And you don't understand why, until much later and then when you rewatch the series it's like aha i see where this is going i see where this what's going on behind the scenes here and it's it's really really well done like like you i'm not a huge fan of jms and in other things but babylon 5 is is excellent and i'm sorry i didn't see it first run i caught up as the dog whines mm-hmm. <laughs> i caught up to it when tnt got it and we're just showing it constantly in reruns. So that's how I got into it. So luckily, I guess, I was able to just watch show after show after show and get all this at once. I didn't have to wait weeks between. That's pretty much how I digested it like the last time I did. And I, I re- again, I reviewed every episode and even Crusade, the spinoff. I even, you know, I've, I've covered the whole thing and there were, you know, some ups and downs, but but this is a really a television achievement to mm-hmm. have done this at all. And it, it was doing it at one half the budget of TNG or other or DS9 or any Star Trek show. So, you know, they're the ones that went, well, I know it doesn't look realistic, but... Uh, like all the spaceships are going to be digital. And at that time, mm-hmm. you can tell. You, you know, you can tell you're looking at uh, CG effects and they're not particularly photoreal compared to what we see today. Right. But then Star Trek moved to that formula as well. So I feel like they were part of that development because uh, like Voyager, when Voyager started, Voyager was all CG for the spaceship effects. and st- It wasn't uh, models. And DS9 kind of went that way too. And that's why we get like there was incredible battles in DS9 in the second half is because now we're mm-hmm. adopting that mode of, of, of effects creation and uh, shows like space above and beyond, which might also have been on this list and Babylon five went full CG when CG models didn't really look lit, right? Mm-hmm. Your eye can tell it's not, it's not the same as models. And then eventually 
the CG and the models all look the same and we can't tell the difference, you know, except there's no way to photograph a model that way. <laughs> That's how we know it's, it's got to be CG because the camera can't be moving around like that around a model. But Babylon 5 was also, again, a trendsetter in, in doing that. And I think that like technology evolved and so Star Trek didn't have to sacrifice anything. And of course, they had more money, so they can mm. probably get better CG out of it. But Babylon 5 was, for all the achievement, was done on, I don't want to call half a million dollars a shoestring budget you know, per episode, but yeah, it was done at half the price of a TNG. Yeah, for what they did with the money, they got a lot out of it. And yeah, it doesn't look quite right, but the idea behind it, them actually using regular... Newtonian physics for how the ships moved. And that's why the Star Furies had the engines way out on pylons. So you had that control over everything. That was really neat to see because you don't get that in science fiction usually. You, it's, it's all, well, physics out the window because it looks nice. Well, this, they actually more or less stuck to how the science actually would work in that. In, out in space and it it paid off i think at least you know for me as a viewer it helps when you got like a singular vision working on it it's not you you can't mm -hmm. have like a guest writer screwing up the science as a plot device you know yeah that's babylon 5 and that those are the six that we brought to the table today and i'm sure there are plenty of others maybe people at home have different favorite ones please tell us about them in the comments or if you watch these of course to wrap up what can we say about TNG's influence on television that, you know, that now that we've talked about these six shows? Well, it, it definitely had an influence on the genre. Like I said at the beginning, it made it acceptable to tell more adult stories in science fiction. But it also was the spur for a lot of uh, creative thinking is like, oh, well, if they can do that, then we can do this. Or what if you take that and turn it on its head? And so I think a lot of what we see, whether intentionally or subconsciously, a lot of the science fiction shows that came out during and after Next Gen owes that for its origin, owes it for at least an influence in how the creators thought to bring their ideas to the screen. It, they're reacting to TNG. If not right. copying, they're, they're reacting to it. Yeah, that makes sense. Gene, this has been a great conversation. Tell us what you're working on right now so people can find you on the podcastosphere elsewhere. <laughs> Well, most of the shows I normally do on the Two True Freaks Network are more or less on a hiatus right now. You know, life, <laughs> etc. I am doing a quarterly show over on the Longbox Crusade Network where Jared Albrecht and I are going through the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes TV show an episode at a time. Well, sometimes two episodes per conversation and looking back at that because he had never seen it and I more or less grew up with it. And I'm also doing some voice acting now with the Akadekagonagon Theater Works, which can be found at Two True Freaks. The main thing we're doing over there is an audio drama of the Strangers in Paradise comic series with the approval of the creator Terry Moore. And coming later this year... Uh, I will be doing. I will be the showrunner for the adaptation of Ron Randall's Trekker comic series. But there's always something coming out every Friday from us over there. Sometimes silly, sometimes serious. But 
it's a fun thing to do. All right. <laughs> uh, well, thanks again, Gene. You keep coming in and out of the Guardian of Forever to meet me. I really don't know what you're doing in there or what it's changing, but uh, I'll let you get <laughs> back to it. I hope you have a plan. Uh, more plan than see of the pants, so. That's good. Just keep your fingers crossed, please. I will. Where's my vaccine? Okay, so while I stick around <laughs> for subspace transmissions, and that's Star Trek news and your feedback on our previous episode. Dr. Fate. Dr. Midnight. Starman. Johnny Quick. Wildcat. Power Girl. The All-Star Squadron. The Firebrand. Amazing Man. Huntress. Cyclone. Sandman. Mr. Terrific. Star Commander Girl. Steel. Power Seven Man. Soldiers of Liberty. Liberty Infinity Incorporated. Those are just some of the celebrated and beloved heroes associated with Earth 2 and the Justice Society of America. These daring mystery men and women banded together in 1940 to form the first super team in comics. They inspired a decades-long legacy of heroes who would follow in their footsteps. And now they've inspired us to launch a new podcast. Justice Society presents a new anthology on the Firewater Podcast Network featuring a variety of theme shows with different hosts celebrating some of their favorite comics and characters associated with the golden age of comics, Earth 2, the JSA, and beyond. Join the fight for justice and subscribe to Justice Society Presents on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Incoming subspace transmissions. Let's start with Star Trek Prodigy News. This is the animated series about a crew of kids that's set to air on Nickelodeon later in 2021 for a 10-episode run. The producers have released a picture of the young cast, and there are a lot of alien looks in there. The only one I can identify is a Tellarite. And as we know, Kate Mulgrew is in it as Admiral Janeway, and we now also know that Bill Campbell, the Rocketeer, is set to reprise his role as the outrageous Okona on the show as a guest star. Speaking of animation... Since we last talked, Lower Decks has been released on Amazon Prime internationally, so if you haven't seen it yet, it's available on that streaming service. Or, if you want to own it, Season 1 is coming to DVD and Blu-ray May 18th with a shipload of extras. The show is also available on what is now called Paramount Plus, the former CBS All Access, which changed names on March 4th. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Movie Land. They seem to be starting from scratch, having tapped Discovery Season 3 writer Kalinda Vasquez to write a Star Trek film for J.J. Abrams' production company. She would be the first woman to ever write a Star Trek film, and at this point, there's no director, plot, or cast, or place in the Star Trek canon, but it is the fourth script commissioned since Star Trek Beyond, so we'll see if this one goes anywhere. Star Trek's Discovery and Picard have been nominated for seven Saturn Awards. These are handed out by the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films and Television. The two shows are going head-to-head -head in the Best Sci-Fi Series category. Three actors from Picard are nominated. Isa Brionis, who played Soji, Jerry Ryan, that's seven, and Sir Patrick Stewart. And two on Discovery, Sonequa Martin-Green and Doug Jones. I do not believe the date for the actual gala has been announced yet. If you enjoy Star Trek novels, then you know they've become more and more canonical over time, officially filling in gaps left by the series. Pocket Books has announced that Michael Burnham's missing year at the top of Discovery Season 3 will be told in a book called Wonderlands by Una McCormick. That's out in May. 
As for the Picard characters, August will see the release of Rogue Elements by John Jackson Miller, which is all about Rios' time in Starfleet. And Pocket Books is also coming out with the Coda trilogy, which will wrap up the post-Nemesis timeline as described in the books. And these will be out in the fall. The makers of the popular mobile game Star Trek Fleet Command have come out with a free, decision-driven, retro-style, web-based game called Star Trek Kobayashi Maru that puts you through the famous test and apparently is nearly impossible to beat. Looking at screenshots, it's a little bit on purpose, since the Kobayashi Maru was introduced in 1982, but it looks more like something off the Super Nintendo than the Atari 2600. With the odds of beating the Kobayashi Maru at around 1 in 10,000, the three fastest players to find the hack and defeat the simulation will win big prizes, including a Paramount Plus lifetime subscription and limited edition Star Trek collectibles. As far as I know, it hasn't happened yet. Let's end with the Voyager documentary, which went into crowdsourcing last month and has already passed $625,000 in pledges expanding the scale of the project. This means 90 minutes instead of 60, an original score and the licensed music, a cast reunion, and more in-depth interviews. Right now, it is doing better than the similar Deep Space Nine documentary project did at this same point. The fundraising campaign lasts through the end of this month. And now a selection of your comments on our previous episode, Shipping Spock and Uhura, with my guest Jonathan Schaefer-Hames. Now first, a number of commenters told us how they didn't like shipping in general. That includes David A. Gutierrez and Boston Moss. Old school Trekkie Chris Franklin says, I am one of those folks baffled at the Kelvin Timeline's Spock Uhura romance just because I think it undermined Quinto's chance to fully portray the character of Spock as we know him. I guess in some ways it deflects comparisons to Nimoy because Spock's openly affectionate nature seemed very out of character for the Spock we knew. That said, they made it work, but it did seem to be just another this-isn't-your-father's-Star-Trek kind of move. Brian Linton describes himself as a closet shipper. He says, I never thought of myself as rooting for particular couples in the stories. For particular couples in the stories I read and watch, but once shipping became a thing, I realized that it was something I did quite often. In regards to this episode, I have to say that I'm more on board with Spock Uhura than I am with Scotty Uhura, which I agree truly came out of nowhere. In TOS, I don't think there's anything romantic going on between Spock and Uhura, but I do think they had a great deal of admiration and respect for each other, which could have developed into something more under the right circumstances. My take on the Kelvin timeline is that those right circumstances just happen to develop. Rob McCarthy says, in the super early episodes, maybe? Maybe they played with a Spock Uhura romance because, what do you mean, interracial kiss? He's not white, he's a Vulcan. Yeah, Rob, 60s or not, they did allow for that flirtation to take place in the man trap, at least. Tim Price says, I haven't rewatched the reboot movies in a while, and this episode is giving me that hankering. Well, all right, Tim. The Fire and Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. So if you like our content and want more like it, think about leaving a one-time or monthly donation. It even unlocks rewards. For example, for $5 a month, you could get yourself on the Starfleet commendations list, like Vice Admiral Doug Van Diver. Join Doug and I in the fleet at patreon.com. And as usual, let me remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire and Water Facebook page or on Twitter, where we are, FW Podcasts. And of course, you can also follow the show on Spotify. 
until the next episode, this is siskoid reminding you to go boldly.